All right, good morning. Ooh, the microphone's on. How many of you have participated in a series or a, I guess it'll be a series, on, on the church before? I think, I mean, if, you're, if you've been around long enough, eventually you'll get something. Or I mean, I think everybody's gotten a message or two before. People kind of come through and they'll teach on the church. Um, so I was asked to introduce... The, uh, the study that I guess you guys will be doing, I don't know if it'll look like this, okay? I know Everyday public, Publications took a book by a brother that, was he originally living down here or did he just teach down here a lot? I mean, I know you guys are really familiar with Randy. Yeah, so anyhow, Randy Amos did a great manual uh, several years ago, and I think it's been all over, and... Um, and it's nice because it's not just purely book form. He put some graphics in it so you could see some things. So I guess you all will be moving through parts of it or all of it. Um, if you haven't sat through something like this before, then you're in for a treat. Because it's really, um, man, there's, there's, there's few things more awesome than coming to understand what, what God's doing. And, and like, why, why do we do what we do? And this morning, what I wanted to do, since I was asked to introduce this, was to basically... Um, I don't plan to go through material in this book since you'll be going through it. What I wanted to do is, is spend time, at least today, talking about the following thing. Why do we care? Why do we want to? Why should you want to? Maybe you say, well, I don't want to. Or if somebody's hearing this, this is being recorded and they're hearing this, they might say, well, you know, why do I want to be part of a local church that is structured like, that, that where they do things like they do at Boulevard Bible Chapel or local churches like that. Now, I'm going to use the term New Testament patterns, and I'm going to have to explain that. It sounds probably familiar and fine to some of you, but I'd like to explain that because I've actually deliberately gone over the last year, I've trained myself to talk about New Testament patterned assemblies or New Testament patterned churches, and I'm going to try to talk about that without getting on, onto a long rabbit trail um, turn, oh, open your Bibles, though. Let's just kind of open our Bibles, too. I'll be reading out of the New King James this morning. I, um, I have a Bible on a tablet, and I'm kind of testing out that territory. I actually have notes, and I have to say, I'm not quite comfortable speaking with a tablet. Even though, it's, even though the notes are there, it's the same thing. Um, it's just something about paper. And I'm, I'm a tech person, so I don't know what that means. But Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. We've asked the Lord to uh, bless our time this morning. I'm going to use a word. I, it, I'm going to take it. This is going to sound funny. I'm going to take it out of context just a little bit. Just by way of illustration here. Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll read from verse four and five. Okay. We read here, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. This is talking about the Lord Jesus, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Lord Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. The priests on earth were from the tribe of Levi. Lord Jesus couldn't be a priest on earth under the law uh, because he was from the tribe of, 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 of Judah. But that's what it says here. Those priests that are on earth serve the copy of and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. So think back, Mount Sinai, 
Moses gets instructions around the tabernacle. This is what God said to him. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This is an example. This is kind of interesting. I don't know if you, I've never read anything more about this idea that God had this a pattern and there's a sense in which there's a heavenly tabernacle and that in some way, I'm not saying it's literal, but in some way the tabernacle on earth copied it some way. And so God gave Moses this pattern. Why do I say that? We're not talking about the tabernacle series. It's to suggest that God is actually God that has structure, God has patterns, God has purposes for why he does things. And we're moving into a culture where, where that's, um, that's a little less welcome these days. We live, especially in America, uh, a land of freedom, a land of individuals. We live in a place where people really feel like they should have the right to kind of find what they want, go where they want, do what they want in the local church. We're a country of business people, so a lot of times people want to do whatever, just whatever works in the local church. And so you really have to stand up and make an argument for the fact that, you know what? I think that, that, that God actually has a little more structure and a little bit more of a pattern that he wants the church to follow. What I'm going to do this morning is to talk about why you should care, why you'd want to be part of that. This book will make an argument, a decent argument, for what the pattern looks like for the church. You, have, you can go online and find series that talk about what the pattern for the church looks like. Okay, all, Some of the things that are in it. I'm going to spend time talking about why it matters. All right, So we can kind of have a little bit of a, of, of a motivation. Um, just a couple words that I'll use. I've already used one of them. New Testament patterns. Okay. I'm argue, I'll, I will argue that there is a pattern in the New Testament... And what I mean by pattern is this. The early church did things. And if you look at all the things that the early church did, things like they broke bread weekly, they actually gathered together, they came together on Sunday and not on Tuesday night. Um, they, um, um, they, they had uh, a plurality of leaders that shepherded their church. Uh, when they came together on the first day of the week, they broke bread. They also had a meal when they came together. They did a number of things. And all those things together make up a pattern. I don't think the New Testament gives us seven patterns, and you pick one for different kinds of churches. And you get that idea. When I was at um, DTS, I was in a class on the church, and a pro I was given a project, and they said, basically, pick from these books. All of these books have church planting models in them. Pick one, read it, and write a summary. And so you could get a book. Uh, with the Acts model, I read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church, because I knew it was something that I wasn't that familiar with. And so I said, well, let me read this and write about it, familiarize myself with that. Well, well that's sort of a classic pattern for like the seeker-sensitive model. So there's all of these different models. And you find people today that will say things like, well, you know, they're all in there. You just kind of you know, do what works for your church and the way God leads you. I don't know that the scripture gives us you know, eight different patterns, seven different patterns in the church. I'm going to suggest that there's primarily one pattern. It's what the church did. And there's value in actually putting that into practice today. So we have the word pattern. You'll also hear me use the word principles. Okay? Now, when you talk with people that have grown up in local churches like this, they'll talk about, like, when I first started to talk about New Testament pattern churches, my dad said to me, my dad is an elder at an assembly in Tampa, he's like, you know, I think people are more familiar with the phrase New Testament principles. And so, you know, I took that to heart. But then as I began to think about it, and I will show you a handout later 
There's a difference between patterns and principles. Principles are spiritual truths in the scriptures. Can anybody think of a principle that might be connected with the church? I'll give you one. I shouldn't ask you without giving an example. The preeminence of Christ. Okay? You, that's not a pattern. You can't, like, you can't go, you can't go, you know, do that. It's just something that uh, is spiritually true and you allow it to, to happen or to be recognized. Can anybody think of another pattern you might have heard somebody preach about? You have the preeminence of Christ. The priesthood of all believers. Okay? Now, I don't want to jump the gun, but... So those are, pa- those are principles. So you have patterns, things that people do. You have principles, spiritual truths that really enrich local church life. And I'll argue that patterns point to the principle. And then there's another P. I'm not a big alliteration guy. Actually, I don't like when people alliterate. Because to me, to me, when they alliterate, especially with Scripture, I feel like they're breaking up the structure of the Bible to fit letters as opposed to allowing the structure of the Bible to dictate, you know. But if you're really good and you can use words that start with the same letter, that follow the structure of the, the Scripture, then that's fine. The third P would be practice. You practice the pattern, okay? So you have a pattern. Pattern points to principles. And then local churches will practice the pattern. And some of their practices will differ, okay? So those are some terms that you'll hear me use. And I just wanted to kind of point them out at the beginning. So let's kind of get going here. Why do we care? Why do we want to do this? If you are involved in a local church like this, you, sh- you will eventually come to the place in life where you realize there's actually some difficulties involved in being part of a local church that's New Testament patterns. And oftentimes it's easier to say, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go to another local church where it's a lot easier. I can just kind of participate and, and, and sit in and just, there's just too much it's too intimate or whatever. Why do we want to stick it out? Why do we want to participate in something like this? Um, let me give you a couple reasons this morning. Um, the first one is, is this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, famous marriage verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. When we talk about the church and we talk about why we want to do something, one of the great things to think about is how much God values the church. This would be sort of a, a first point. If you start to realize how much the Lord Jesus Christ loves the church and is excited about the church, and you just stop and think about it a little bit, it might give you a reason to sort of slow down and say, wow, okay, this means a lot to, to him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, some of you can quote it. We read there that husbands are to love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And you read it, and you're like, okay, that's great. No, wait, no, what does it actually say? It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. The first book my, ever, my dad ever gave me, I was 12, was a little book by William McDonald. It's an advanced Bible correspondence course titled Christ Loved the Church. I didn't read it. You know, I put it on my shelf. I wrote my name on it. Um, I still have it. But I think he starts out on the first page, I think he said something like, at least in that edition, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and so should we. Something like that. I mean, if, if Jesus Christ loves the church, died for the church, then, then, you know, that means it's hugely important. 
And that should give us a little bit of a reason to value the church and say, maybe if he's willing to die for it and if he loves it, maybe I should stop and think about what the Lord Jesus Christ instituted, what he taught the apostles. Um, do I have the same value for the church? Because a lot of people are just very casual about church. I meet people. I met a guy on the train yesterday, and he is from Tampa, and he said to me, his name is, uh, I, well, I'm not going to say his name in case it gets holy. I doubt he will. But um, he, he said, are you a Christian? I, don't, I, I must have been doing something. I, I can't. I think I told him I was coming to speak. And, and then um, we talked, you know, where do you live? Where do I live? Same city. Um, and so I, I told him I was speaking. And so he says, where do you go to church? And he was describing, he was starting to ask me about a local church. Do you know about this local church? And, and I'm, I, I didn't recognize it because it was a Spanish church. And so I said, well, where is it? And he was like, well, I think it's here. I think it's there. And he didn't want to explain to me. And then he says this, that's where I go to church. And I thought, but you don't know where it's at. Right? My neighbor across the street says to me at some point that, you know, we met this person at church or that person at church, but he never goes anywhere on Sunday. And I don't see him go on Saturday. I don't think he's like a Seventh-day Adventist. So we meet a lot of people that, I don't want to use the term they go to church or they're involved in the church, but it's not really that significant to them. Okay, I just want to put that out right away. There is a difference between a person who realizes that Christ loves the church and they have a heart for it too versus just sort of being nonchalant about it. Uh, that's, just, that's just one one point. And there's a lot of verses. I don't know if anybody's writing anything down, but um, he loves it. He cherishes the church. Uh, look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I'm just going to fire some verses off and then we'll move on. These are verses that tell us how much the Lord values the church and that we should value it the same way. We should be motivated to care, to look into things. We should be careful. I'll tell you another story in a second. But Acts 20, verse 28 says this. Um, Therefore, take heed, watch out for yourselves and all the flock among whom, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. What? that he purchased with his own blood. Now that's an interesting phrase because it says, whose blood? God's? Does it say, right? I mean, most English translations here this morning say the church of God. Okay, but whose blood was shed on the cross? The Lord Jesus Christ's blood. Okay? This is, this is, this is an interesting thing when you, look, when you look at the deity of Christ. Oftentimes there's lots of indirect evidence for it like this. Okay, here the blood that was shed on the cross is, is, is God's blood. And that would point to the deity of Christ, which is not our topic this morning. But if you shed your blood for something, if you purchase something with your blood, I mean, what a graphic statement. God purchased the church with his blood. We cannot be casual about the church, right? I mean, we can't. And yet there are so many people that are just, they're just casual about it. Um, Another verse, Acts or, or Matthew chapter 13, I'm not going to read it, verse 44, you could write it down, talks about the pearl of great price. Now that might look at the kingdom, but it looks at the value that, that, was, that was put into, that was valued the church or the, the, the kingdom, and there's a difference, um, and it looks at, at the Lord purchasing something. I understand the relationship between the church and the kingdom, and this is a different topic, that the church is part of the kingdom. It's underneath the larger banner of the kingdom, 
but it is not exactly the same. The kingdom is the rulership of God uh, on earth, seen on earth, and the church is part of God's rulership. The Bible says that when we're saved, Colossians 1.13, we are translated out of darkness and placed in the kingdom of his dear son. Okay? Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Unless he's born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. You will find verses in the scripture that teach that we are saved and we, we uh, are placed in the kingdom now, but in the future we will enter the kingdom. Okay? Through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom, Paul says. Uh, and there's a future tense aspect to that where God will, the Lord Jesus Christ will come to earth and establish visibly his rulership and rule on earth. The kingdom will be established here. I see plain verses for both of those. People in the past tend to, tended to totally equate the church with the kingdom, but I don't think there's just a one-to-one correspondence like that um, because God's kingdom and rule has been around much longer than the church has. So the church is, is sort of part of that. Anyhow, um, pearl of great price. So we have to ask ourselves, and you can ask yourself before the Lord, you can go home tonight or at some other point, or if you're listening to this, um, if it's being recorded, you know, does any of this really matter to me? Do I care the same for the church like the Lord Jesus Christ does? Some people have said that the church is the most valuable thing to God on earth today. Right? I don't know why. I mean, you can stop and think, what's the most valuable thing that you have besides children, besides people? That might sound like a petty question if you have sort of spiritual priorities, but you could probably think of something. And you don't treat it lightly. Um, all right. Here's a second reason. The scripture suggests that the Lord Jesus Christ is watching what we're doing. That might sound like, oh, yeah, of course he is. But turn to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Actually, no, Revelation chapter um, 1. You know, when you, when you move among believers, they talk about worship, they talk about praise, and, and you get together and you sing praises to the Lord, and, and they talk about the individual Christian's life. I don't hear people often talking about the fact that the Scripture presents Jesus Christ as watching the church, like, and watching individual local churches. This is a second motivation. Why should I care about the church? Why should I stop and say, you know what, let me, let me, let me participate in a study about the church and let me learn about the church and let me be careful with my family as I go around and look for local churches. As I'm an individual and I go off to college, let me not just show up at any local church. Let me stop and think about it and really put some thought into this. Here's the second reason why. One, I want to be part of a church and I want to value the church like the Lord Jesus does. Two, he's watching. Look at this. Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading at verse number 9. Okay, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom. Um, see, John's in the kingdom there. So we're talking about that. Uh, and patience of Jesus Christ, waiting for Jesus Christ to return, was on the island that was called Patmos. Why was he on the island? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He wasn't there on vacation, that's for sure. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That would be Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice, as of or like a trumpet. Um, so didn't, he's, not, he's just trying to describe with a term that the reader might understand what the voice was like. So it's just like, you know, boom, dun, dun, dun. It's just this loud voice saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches or seven assemblies or gatherings in Asia. And then you list them out. Asia is Turkey, by the way. 
our, that's what we understand today as Turkey. Um, and then he lists them out. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And of course, he turns around like you or I would. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And there were seven churches or seven golden lampstands. What's a lampstand? Okay, it's a stand on which a lamp is or a light or a menorah or something like that. And then we read this. In the middle or the midst of the, the lampstands, the seven lampstands, stands one like the Son of Man. Now that's interesting because that comes out of Daniel 7. Okay? Daniel 7, there's this vision about there's God Almighty in heaven and one like a Son of Man. Son of Man means... Originally in the scriptures, son of man, a human, okay? Just a human. But there's a scene in heaven where there's one like the son of man that comes before the ancient of days and receives a kingdom. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't use the term that all the, the, he doesn't walk around calling himself the Messiah. He calls himself the son of man. He links himself with this scene in Daniel, and it wasn't a term that was used a lot. So he, he calls himself the son of man. Here we read, there's one like the son of man, Okay, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band and his head and his hair were white like wool. You see him describing the, the white glory and shining radiance coming off him. As white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brasses if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. He has a vision of Christ and the in, in his glory and radiance. And this is very interesting. When I saw him, I didn't be like, I didn't say, hey, what's up, Jesus? And I'm not trying to be flippant, but that's kind of the idea that sometimes we get about the Lord Jesus Christ. But you find in Scripture that when believers are in the presence of God and his glory, it's not a joking matter. And this, who is this? This isn't a stranger. This is a man that had probably had one of the closest relationships with the very person he was standing in front of, right? John had actually leaned against the Lord Jesus at that Last Supper. He knew him. He was the loved, beloved disciple. And yet when he stands before that same Lord Jesus in his glory, he falls on his face like a, like, like a dead man. And that's just interesting to think about. And... Um, and, and it, should, it should educate our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you hear people referring to the big guy upstairs and referring to you know, the Lord in these different ways. This should educate our, our thinking about being in the presence of the Lord. But then look at this. It's not that we're just supposed to be terrified and afraid, although there is a, there's a healthy fear. Then the Lord Jesus... Um, puts his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades or of the grave and of death. And then he tells him to write. And basically what you see in the next, um, the next two chapters is the Lord Jesus Christ saying that he walks among the seven lampstands and he's, he's watching them. And he names these specific details about these local churches. He, he names these specific local details. He doesn't just say that, um, I can't give a general, an example of any general that would apply to a bunch of churches, but it would almost be like if he said, 
and to the church that's at Boulevard. I know your works. I know this happened. I know you went through this, and I'm holding you accountable for that. You get the point? I mean, you get this idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is paying attention to local churches, not just this general worldwide church. He knows details about local churches, and you can find some of them. Um, let's just take an example. Okay? Verse number 8 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna, right, these things says the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty. So this local church was impoverished in some way, and he knew that. But you are rich, very interesting. And, and it's the rich church that he calls poor. The poor church he calls rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, we don't really necessarily know what that means. I mean, it was a local event. Something was going on there. Somebody was blaspheming. There was something that was related to Judaism, a synagogue. We don't know. Apparently, he knew. And you find these examples. And so he knows these local details. So a second reason why I should care about the local church and want to you know, be educated about it and think about it, we're talking about motivation, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is paying personal attention to, to, to local churches. He even threatens to remove a candlestick, you know, to remove a local testimony. By the way, if you ever read old books that talk about the testimony, you'll hear about some people talking about a testimony was established, and they're referring to the planting of a local church. They're referring to this imagery here that when a, a local church in Revelation is viewed as a lampstand and it shines the light of the gospel into the community and the area in which it is, it's a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the gospel. And so if you run across that language in an old writing, or maybe some up-to-date, some people still use it. I don't, I don't hear it used that much. That's what it's referring to, okay? Um, so that's another reason why, why we really ought to um, you know, be concerned and, and, and take care to to know about the local church. Um, look at this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. This is, this is another reason. And these are kind of different. These aren't, these aren't my main reasons, but I, I find them to be pretty convincing. This is a very interesting verse. People don't mention this much. A third reason why I should care about the local church and, and, and be careful with it, this is very important, is apparently God is trying to teach the angels something about through the church. You ever think about that? I hope that doesn't make you nervous. Um, I could be wrong on this, but I know there's at least a phrase in the scriptures about the watchers. And I think it might be a reference to angelic beings. But we're told that the angels watch us. They long to look into certain things, writes Peter. Look at this verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm going to write, <clears throat> I'm going to write, I'm going to read from verse number 8 for context. To me, Paul writes, who am less than the least of all the saints. All Christians are saints, holy ones, set apart ones. Paul says, I'm less than all of them. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And not just preach but to make all people or all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That means we get to participate in and share in and be involved in this mystery, something that wasn't known so much in the Old Testament, but it's understood now, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus to the intent, here we go, now that the manifold wisdom of God 
might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's interesting. Apparently, God had certain things that weren't revealed in the Old Testament that he has revealed and put into play in the New Testament because one of his bigger agendas is to display his wisdom to the angels. Those are who principalities and powers are. I, 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 don't want to say, I, I don't know what to say about that. But here's what I'm thinking. We need to be careful what we do with the display model. Okay? I mean, if you're given a display and it's supposed to, it's like, I mean, I'm just going to make up an illustration here. If you're a salesperson and you've given a display of, of a complicated piece of equipment and it's got hoses and knobs and dials and you're supposed to just basically take it and, and, and show it to people or to customers and you take the hoses and you move them around. You're like, hey, this is cool. These things just all come apart. And, and then, you, you know, you sort of slide it in front of somebody and you're like, and they're like, well, what does it do? You know, we have to be careful that we don't mess up God's display, God's um, tool to display his wisdom to the angelic realms by altering the church too much. I hope I'm kind of making a basic point here. All right? I'm not saying we don't have any freedom or liberty to, you know, to work in the environment that we're in, but we need to be careful. That one concept alone, if we remember it, that would give us cause to say now, when we make decisions, I mean, imagine if you had leadership meetings and you're going to decide about things in a local church and we say, you know, what, some people say, what would Jesus do about the individual life? You know, you would say, what, what would it look like to the angels <laughs> as you're making decisions about your local church? You wouldn't do that. You say, what does it look like to Christ? But it's an interesting thought. If we, if we tamper with the local church too much, will we detract from or work against God's program to demonstrate his wisdom and authority and power to the angels. Um, verse number 21 says this, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. One reason he's working in the church is to get glory. God forbid we ever do things in a church where someone else starts to get glory besides the Lord Jesus Christ. You want a second verse that backs that up? You've already seen it. Does anybody know where it is? Can you guess of a verse in the New Testament that talks about the angels looking upon the church? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, you can write it down. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. I'll just read it quickly. We're, we're talking. I don't say. Well, we're talking about motivation this morning. First Corinthians eleven, verse ten. For, I'll let you get there first. For this reason, a woman ought to have a. The New King James reads a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. It doesn't say a lot about it, but there's something connected with the woman. In the local church, her relationship to the man, to God, and the angels. It's a very significant verse that plays a role in that passage. Okay, so there's at least two verses, and you can write down 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. If you're taking notes, 1 Peter 1, 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. That's the prophets of old, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel 
to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Three verses that talk about angels looking into our lives, our salvation, and into the church. Pretty good motivator. So we've got the Lord's love for the church, the price he paid for it, the value of it, one. Two, we have the fact that Christ is paying very close attention to local churches and those details about experiences. And three, the angels are looking at the church and God's teaching the church, teaching the angels through the church. Three reasons to take the local church serious and to want to know about it. Um, all right. Here's a, a fourth reason. Ephesians chapter 4. Last night we talked with the young people about um, you're not going to become what the Lord wants you to become without suffering. We mentioned that. This is what James says. God, God takes us through some trials. He allows, the, he allows the trials of life that happen to everybody to work on us and to mature us. Um, patience needs to have its perfect work in you so that you might be perfect and mature, um, lacking nothing. Um, well, here's a similar verse. Ephesians chapter 4, another reason why we want to be careful with the church, want to be educated about the church, is that God has structured into the church his maturity program for believers. I actually believe that. It's actually built into the structure of the church. It's built into the pattern. And so if we tinker with the pattern too much, we might actually engineer a local church that whatever else it does, it might be great, the gospel might go out, people might get saved by the hundreds, but it can wind up producing immature believers. So we're not talking about gospel here. We're talking about maturity. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm very tempted to talk a lot about this passage because it's got a number of major topics in it for our, our, our discussion. But let's just start at verse 7. We're going to come back later, hopefully, and talk about verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6 tell us, I believe, how we ought to relate to the wider body of Christ. And it's going to get into an issue of something that I think some of us struggle with uh, from, from our, our background, some of us that uh, have grown up in local churches like this. But let's just go to verse 7. Um, verses 1 to 6, look at what all of us have in common. Verses 7 uh, through to uh, verse number 16, talk about what we have individually from the Lord. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, God gives each of us some measure of grace and spiritual gifts. We read that four times in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, um, we read it in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and I think it's 1 Peter 4. Four times we're told that all of us, each of us, have some type of a spiritual gift. Therefore, that's why the Lord says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, skip down to verse 11. He himself gave some to be, and you can list out, these are the only gifts that are listed right here. Apostles, prophets, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors. That word is the only place in the English New Testament where you find the word pastor. What's the word behind it in Greek? It's poimen. It's the regular old word for a sheep shepherd. Um, and Oftentimes, we have loaded into that word all of our cultural understanding of church government, simply because we recognize an English word there. 
Not that all of that is bad, but it just helps us to know that it's just the word shepherd. He's given shepherds to the church and then also teachers. Okay? For what? For the equipping of the saints. For the work of the ministry or unto the work of the ministry. So these shepherds and teachers uh, and initially the apostles and prophets were given to the church to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. That's the structure of the grammar here, I'm told. What happens next? For the edifying of the body of Christ. So if I'm reading this right, it's especially when all of the believers get involved in ministry that the body gets edified. You're going to have a local church that's going to be more edified if everybody's involved in ministry than if just a couple people are involved in ministry. I don't know if you see that. We kind of have to look at the verse a couple times. But in other words, you can have a staff that operates a church and God will use it. God, this is a matter of good versus best is kind of how I like to describe this. Um, but if you get a local church that's structured like we see here, where your leaders are equipping people to do ministry and the ministry is done by the believers, the body is going to be edified a lot more effectively. And then it says this, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, I read mature there, mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's destiny for you and I is that we would be like the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We see that in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 29. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's your destiny. God wants you to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be awesome, a world full of people like the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that was God's original intention for the earth, that it would be filled with people that bore the image of God. When you looked upon earth, you saw people that walked like God and talked like God and did what God wanted and were concerned about God's agenda, and that obviously didn't happen. And so God doesn't fail in his plans. He's basically accomplishing his agenda for earth. He's taking fallen creatures and in salvation making us like the image of his dear son, who happens to be the express image of God. He's making us like himself. So it says here that when we become like the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I mean, you could keep reading, but the, the simple point is this. If we take the local church and we don't follow at least, this is one aspect of the pattern where leaders equip people to do the work of the ministry. If we depart from that, it's very likely that we will wind up dematuring the believers. And that makes sense. You've seen this. When I went to DTS, the roommate next to me was like a lot of the guys at DTS, a, a brother who was passionate for Christ, passionate for the gospel, loved the Lord. He was there studying. But as we began to talk about the structure for the church, he just opened up and said that one of the things that he was seeing at a lot of local churches was immaturity in the believers. If people understood the gospel, there was immaturity. And we kind of came to this passage and part of this conclusion, which is that, if people are coming to local churches and they're mostly sitting and they're not being equipped to do the ministry and they're not being equipped to get involved, then immaturity results. And immature believers are open to false doctrine and open to wrong influences. I mean, you see that in all kinds of areas of life. You can have a person that's intellectually trained about stuff, but unless they actually get you know, 
get on the, 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 the work floor or get out and teach. I mean, I had a degree in education. I took all kinds of classes on education. But let me tell you something. You are not ready to teach until you step into the classroom, right? You can read books about marriage all day long, but there are just, it's when you get married, you will start to learn certain lessons about marriage. You know, and after you've been married two or three times, then you're ready to get married. Not two or three times, two or three years, sorry. <laughs> two or three years. Yeah, that's on tape, all right? Scripture says God hates divorce, okay? <laughs> been married for two or three years, then you understand some things, then you've learned some lessons, and you're like, okay, now I know what I'm getting into, all right? Maturity comes through participation, not just through knowledge. Okay, so an additional reason for why we should care about the local church is that if we mess with God's pattern too much, we're going to start impacting ourselves. We're going to start impacting the people that we're trying to mature. I mean, you're not going to meet a church leader. Well, maybe you will. A church leader in the United States, for example, that doesn't want people at their local church to be mature. I mean, maybe you will, you know, some, some false teacher that's just in it for the money. But you'll meet, I mean, all kinds of, of church leaders, and they want people to be mature and full-grown. And, and even though they might not have the same desire to be part of a New Testament pattern church like you do, they want that. Well, the Scripture seems to indicate one way to get that. So, I don't have numbers here, but just to go back and review here, a first reason why we want to be um, passionate about the church and, 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 and its structure is that God gave his, his only begotten Son for it, and he values it. Uh, a second reason is that the Lord Jesus Christ is looking at personal details, looking at individual details. He's not just generally looking over the world. A third reason is that the Lord is teaching the angels of the church. If we tinker with it too much, we could wind up working against God. Uh, a fourth reason is that the church has an impact on you and what you become and your maturity. Um, another reason is, and this would be a, a fifth reason, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, and we're going to have to take a break here soon, the church is the only visible institution that the Lord left on earth. Have you heard that before? You might have read that, read that in the book. The Lord didn't leave a school. He didn't leave, I don't, I don't know what other categories, you know, you could say parachurch organization. He didn't leave that. He left, not, not to say that those can't be used, but he left a small group of believers. And the Holy Spirit, he sent down later and empowered them. He left the church on earth. This is God's, this is, when God, who has all knowledge and all wisdom, wanted to leave something on earth, he left the church. So this must be what the earth needs. This must be what we need, more than anything else. And that just elevates the value and the role of, of the church. Um, all right. So you're talking with somebody. And you say, they say, well, where do you go to, where do you go to church at? You say, well, I go to Boulevard Bible Chapel. Well, what kind, of, you know, what kind of local church is that? And you tell them, which I hope you'll think about after this weekend is over, it's a New Testament pattern church. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, we're trying to implement the New Testament's pattern in our church. Okay, well, so are we. Okay, great. Now you can have a conversation. What do you understand the New Testament pattern to look like? Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, here's what I think. You know, we see um, 
people come together and in worship, they break bread on the first day of the week to remember the Lord. And you get in this conversation. And somebody might say to you, like somebody said to me at a, we were getting together for food when we were up in Tallahassee. Well, we're not under the law anymore. And, uh, and God saved us. And uh, he doesn't want us to worry about all those details anymore. You get those kind of answers from people. You just kind of like, you have to digest it. And you're like, I don't know that we're on the same page here. But you're going to meet a lot of people, especially in our postmodern society, that don't think details are important. Matter of fact, if you've read anything about, all right, let me, let me get a, a book out here. I did bring some books um, about the emerging church. Emerging church. Vintage Christianity for New Generations by Dan Kimball, who is an emergent church guy. Uh, so this is a pro-emergent church book. Uh, here's something else. Pretty famous book. Why We're Not Emergent by Two Guys Who Should Be, by two guys named DeYoung and, and, and Cluck. Um, you're going to meet people, you'll read about people that basically emphasize conversation over doctrine. The journey over the destination experience over truth, these kinds of things. It's very post, it's postmodernism coming out of the church, a de-emphasis on knowing truth, on being able to arrive at things, more on sharing and experiencing. And one of the things that they've de-emphasized, and some, some, some churches that have followed this route has, has really been even some crucial doctrines, like, the, like, like saying that people from other faiths may be saved without putting their trust in Christ on the cross. And all kinds of things are coming out of this movement and, 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 and you know, we're not going to talk about this morning. My point to you is this. I think you can show people that the apostles really had an intention um, to pass on certain specific things about the church. And that they, they, their idea wasn't just that, well, look, here's some general things. We're going to pass some general ideas on to you, and you sort of use them as best as you can. So I am going to, with the time that we have left, then we'll take a break, rapid fire, give you some verses that I think demonstrate that the apostles had a very clear idea about what they were supposed to pass on and they wanted other people to pass it on, okay? So this will be my, sort of my, my sixth point, is that the New Testament pattern for the church and some of the things that we're talking about and the things that you'll, you'll read about here, why should you be motivated? Because they're biblical, they're, they're, they're in the scriptures, they're something that the, the, the apostles actually wanted passed on. It's not just like, hey, this is your opinion, and that's what your church does, and that's cool for you guys, and this is what we do over here down the street, all right? Because I know you've already met that type of um, attitude, right? I mean, you've, you've met that, and you kind of feel embarrassed. You're like, ah, oh, am I the person that's just sort of stuck on all the details? You know, can't I just relax? Well, let's read some verses here quickly. Um, real fast, John chapter 16, verses 12 to 13, I'm not going to read it, basically says the Holy Spirit would lead the disciples, would become apostles into all truth. Okay, If you're writing these down, you can write them. I'm going to read some of them, but I'm not just going to just list that out. So there was truth that was going to be given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles after Pentecost. Okay, 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church, finish the verse, is the pillar and ground or support of the truth. Okay, So truth is found... In the church, God put the church on earth to be a, st a stabilizer and a source for truth. So we've got something here. The church is bound up with truth. It's not just sort of some expression and experiential type of thing. There's truth that's connected to the church that God wants 
to, to be preserved. Now, here we go. Watch this. And I got this from Larry Price. I know everybody here knows Larry Price, right? Okay. Larry and I were speaking out in Texas, and he began to list some of these references out. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. You tell me after I read some of these verses whether or not the Apostle Paul had a clear sense that there was truth and that people had to preserve it and care about it. 1 Timothy 2, 4. I'm just going to read through 1 Timothy chapter 2. Or excuse me, 1 Timothy. I'm just going to read some verses off quickly. Got to get there first. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 7, For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Chapter 3, verse 15, But if I am delayed, I write so that you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Chapter 4, verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received by those with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 6, 5. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of, of truth. Now, I'm not going to keep reading all these, but I'll just give you more references. You can see in 2.18, 3, 7, and 8. 2 Timothy 2.18, 2 Timothy 3, 7, and 8, the same thing. 2 Timothy 4.4 4 says, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He just says it over and over again. Now, the word doctrine. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. There is truth. In other words, there are things. What is truth? Anybody ever, Pilate asked that question, what is truth? Okay? This might be a little more philosophical, but truth is when what is in my mind, for example, corresponds to or matches what is out there in reality. Truth is not that which connects and works with my philosophical system. It's not just a perspective. Um, truth is when what's in my mind or my belief system matches what is really real out there. That's called the correspondence theory of truth. What's in my mind corresponds to what is real. So if I believe... I'm just going to pick something out of the room, that the building at Boulevard Bible Chapel in the main meeting room has four white pillars in the center. Y'all got to count. Y'all been here a long time. You reminded me of something. Um, that is not a truth statement because what is in my mind and my statement does not correspond to what is actually there. Now you want to, you know, you're in a philosophy class. Somebody's like, well, how do you know if what you see is what's really there? And you get into theories of knowledge. But there are three pillars in the room. If I say there are three pillars in the room, then that's a true statement. What's, what's in my mind and my mouth is corresponding to what's there, okay? So the truth is that which corresponds to reality. So, doctrine. 
Well, we get truth from, from God. I guess that's why I'm bringing that up. It's found in his word. Um, it's not just something that we make up. It's not just a perspective. Um, he's saying there's something real and concrete um, and that God has given to us. Doctrine, 1 Timothy 1.3. Got to hurry up here and stop. 1 Timothy 1.3. I urged you, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 10. Fornicators, sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God who is communicating to my trust. Um, 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister or a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. 6.3 If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. I mean, you can just see verse after verse that talks about doctrine. There was a body of teaching that was extremely important to the apostles. Now, you're not convinced yet. I understand. All right? So watch this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, I'm sorry. 2 Timothy 2, 2, and then we'll do 1 Corinthians 1. So... There's all of this doctrine and all of this truth that Paul talks about. Well, watch what happens in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I know you all have memorized this, some of you. If you haven't, you should. It's a great, great verse. Paul's sort of last words to Timothy, and one of the things he says to them is this. Him is this. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Timothy was traveling with Paul. Paul was preaching. He heard it from Paul among many people and witnesses. So this isn't stuff Paul taught in secret. This was his open teaching and ministry. Commit these to faithful men. So now, Timothy, you've got them. You commit them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's that last little line that turns this into a pattern for the whole church. It's not just, Timothy, you teach them, but you teach them to people who can teach them to people who can teach them to people. There's actually four generations in here. There's Paul, there's Timothy, there's faithful men who are able to teach others, and there's others. And so it wasn't just that there's all this truth, 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 doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Take it and pass it on to people who can pass it on. Is this local church, and I, I, I'm tempted to get into all, all kinds of practical stuff here. Is this local church, is my local church, are the New Testament Patterson churches in Florida finding people, training up people who can take sound doctrine and pass it on? That should be part of the local church. It's not just that we preach. Oh, we just preach here. But we also Commit things. What does the word commit mean? It means to give. I, I'm gonna, we don't just teach, but we commit them to the next generation to pass them on. Because if we don't, when one generation dies, the whole thing can go out the window. It's just something to think about, and it's, and it's something that I, I have a desire to be involved in. Um, let's take a break. Let's take a break, and we'll go through some more of these, uh, these things, because I think what, what you see next in 1 Corinthians will really... Uh, Make a strong point. So I, I guess we'll take we'll take five minutes. This is like a college class. You want to take ten minutes, five minutes? You know, we'll take five minutes. Get up, stretch your legs.